Good morning. Boy, it feels good when the sun is out, doesn't it? It is, it is coming along. We are going to be delivered from this winter before long, I believe. <laughs> we could end the service right now, right? <laughs> uh, hey, just r- real quick announcement, and then we're going to dive right into our text. Um, uh, uh, Pastor Adam and Holly and the girls are headed out on sabbatical, and uh, that begins Monday. And uh, so this is their last Sunday here for three months, and, uh, and they have uh, amazingly, amazingly, uh, it's been seven years uh, since uh, Pastor Adam and his family came on board, and uh, our church policy is that at seven years, a sabbatical is offered to staff uh, to the pastoral staff, and, uh, and they can take it if they're willing to sign, a, sign their contract that they'll come back for three more years. And uh, so that's the good news. So we're going to lose them for three months, but we get them for at least three more years. So uh, anyways, so we're uh, happy for them for their rest, and uh, uh, we'll miss them uh, dearly. And uh, so, you know, my encouragement to you this morning is if you've got anything to talk to Adam about, if all of you could hound him this morning, that might be very good. So... Uh, But let's pray. We're going to pray for them and uh, for their time and then for our time in the Word together. Our Father, we do thank you for faithful servants. Thank you for Pastor Adam and Holly and the girls uh, for uh, all that they mean to us as a church family, for the ways they encourage and lead and teach, the ways that they relate to people here. Thank you for their compassion for the lost thank you for their passion for the truth and we do ask lord that this season would uh that this sabbatical would be a time of rest and refreshment that they would be invigorated uh, for years of ministry to come Uh, we ask for your protection for us as a church while they're gone um, that things would not uh, fall between the cracks that we would have grace for one another um, as as a a significant leader of ours is stepping um, out for a season. And God, we pray now that as we go to your word, um, that we would be truly blessed to learn more about the nature of our good God. That it would not just be abstract truth, but truth that produces change and transformation in our lives and lets us know how fortunate and blessed we really are to be in the position that we are as family of God. So teach us, Holy Spirit, from your word and drive the truths deep down into our heart. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you'd open your Bibles to Matthew 9, we're gonna pick up in verse 35 and then we're gonna go into about halfway through chapter 10. One of the primary features of the gospel of Matthew as we've been Uh, kind of plodding through this in our series about King Jesus, one of the primary features of the Gospel of Matthew is that it is arranged around five discourses of Jesus, or five sermons of Jesus, if you will. Uh, And it's one of the unique contributions of Matthew, really, to the Scriptures, uh, that it contains more, really, of the teaching of Jesus than any other book. And, uh, and so it's just fabulous for those of us who claim to be followers of Christ, who know his teachings and live them out in our lives. This is such a rich place to go to um, be confronted with them head on. Uh, we've already looked extensively at the first major discourse in the book of Matthew, which of course was the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we looked at uh, basically Jesus' description there of what life is like in the kingdom of God. 
what it's to be like. And today we look at the second major discourse, what some refer to as the Sermon on the Mission, uh, which alliterates, therefore, it must be true, of course, the Sermon on the Mission. And so, uh, amazingly, here in the passage that we're going to look at today, not only are we going to see the heart of God uh, for the lost and for the broken, but we see that he honors and dignifies his people in that he deputizes them and calls them to be about his mission. Uh, And so we get to see in this particular mission that he kind of lays out here that there's really two stages to it. And I want to grab your attention. If you don't get this at the beginning, you might be a little bit lost as we go. But as we look at this, this passage this morning, there are really two parts or two stages of mission. Now, some of it is directly applicable for us, and some of it is not. So isn't that a funny way for the preacher to begin the sermon, you know? I have a passage for you today, and some of it is not applicable to you hardly at all. Okay? So I'll just kind of get your mind thinking there just a little bit. The first stage that we're going to uh, look at here as, as Jesus begins to lay out his mission and deputize people along uh, to be a part of it, is that he commissions uniquely the 12 apostles initially to go out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so there is an immediacy and an urgency of mission and ministry that is given specifically to them. And so some of what is given to them is not given to us to do. The second stage we'll see, which kind of starts more or less in verse 16 of chapter 10, we'll see some of the kind of universal truths, the principles of being a part of God's mission that is more applicable to us as God's people go out and take the gospel to uh, the Gentiles, to the broader world, to the non-Jewish world. So today, again, we're going to be looking at verses or chapter 9, 35 through 10, 15, and we're going to see the commissioning that was given explicitly to the apostles for a specific season of time. So look with me at verse 35. Matthew 9, 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And so the first thing we're going to pick up on is this, that we really get a chance, a privilege to see the heart of Jesus for the ministry that is in front of him, for the mission. And what we find is that Jesus goes to, that he went to the lost and the broken. Last week, Pastor Mark preached for me while we were taking some time on vacation, and one of the passages that he went through shows how Jesus goes to the lost, where he says in Matthew nine twelve, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And later on, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so what stands out to me from the passage we're looking at today, along with the passage that Mark looked at last week, is this continuing initiative of Jesus to come to the broken and to the needy. And let me try to put it in a little bit of perspective. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, who lived in perfect unity, in perfect communion, 
in perfect harmony with the triune God for eternity past. Each person of the triune God had delighting in one another, rejoicing in their very community and in their harmony together, needing nothing. And yet God concerned himself with us. Out of this perfect community, he sees the needs of his children and he concerns himself with us. Uh, we all know how difficult it is to leave comfort, okay? Uh, in, at our house, on a crisp winter day, uh, which is most of the year, if we're honest about it, <coughs> I love to sit in, uh, I have a particular chair that sits in front of a particular window, and on the sill is where I put my coffee, and I have the books that I'm cruising through, and I have a wood stove right next to it. And the dog even lays right about there at my feet, um, and so it's this, it's my little, it's, you know, it's, it feels like my little spot. And I love to sit there on a day and have all of my creature, on a cold day and have all of my creature comforts around me to have, you know, some cookies and some coffee and a good book and a warm fire and, and the dog laying on my feet. And that's a good day. Now, I also love cross-country skiing. And I can sit there in my warm, comfortable chair with my book and my coffee and my cookies and look outside and think, wow, this would be a really good day to ski. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to go ski right now. It's hard to separate ourselves from, from that warmth, that position of rest and comfort with all of my favorite things around me. I don't want to go out into the elements and and begin the work. And you know, once you're out there, it's all good, right? It's the getting from where you are to the other place that's difficult and crossing that threshold because the law of inertia is at work. A body at rest wants to stay at rest. But the warmth of the triune fellowship of the Godhead did not have a permanent hold on Jesus. And he left the warmth and the rest and the communion and the unity and the peace and the beauty and the glorious aspect of fellowship that he enjoyed with the Father and the Son. And he came to the mess that we had made. His love drove him to leave the abode of heaven and to come to the needs that we had presented. And so the Father sends the Son on a holy errand to announce God's redemptive program to a sinful world. And Jesus submits to his sending and comes. And in priestly fashion, Jesus is both the messenger and the means of salvation. He would be the Lamb of God sacrificed for the sins of the world. And he will tell people how to be reconciled to a holy God and he will be the means of that reconciliation. And so we see in Jesus, in his arrival and in his mission, this wonderful initiative of the triune God, sent from the Father, the eternal Son, leaves the abode of heaven and comes to rebels and takes on human flesh so that he can die, so that we can be reconciled to the Father. Or to say it very, very simply, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
What I want you to see is that the love of God, which we've sung about so beautifully this morning with powerful songs, and can I just say, nobody has better songs to sing than the church. Nobody has better truths to sing than the church. And we've sung some good ones this morning. But the love of God was not just an eternal emotion. It was not just a sentiment. But God's love compelled him to action. It caused him to send his beloved son for our salvation. And in the same way, this same love drives the son to go consistently and persistently to the needy and to the broken and to the sinner and to the one who needed to be reconciled to God. And so having been sent, Jesus goes through all of the cities proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, I think it's easy for us to puzzle over a little bit, what is this proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of God? How is this good news and, you know, kind of what is, what is this all about? This is probably the most important phrase in all of the book of Matthew, the kingdom of God. It, it, it appears uh, frequently. But we need to understand this. The kingdom of God was the great hope of Israel. It is what they have been looking for, waiting for, longing for. It is what they really have been promised. Going all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. And God's promise to make him a nation and to make him great and to bless all of the world through him. And then from the deliverance of Egypt coming into the promised land. They're looking to be a kingdom. They're looking to be a people that (coughs) is the people of God. And then we have all of their troubled years of idolatry and disobedience, which of course led to the Babylonian exile and to defeat. And then we have God's faithfulness to forgive them and return them back to the holy city, Jerusalem. And then we have the prophets coming along and telling them of this time when a king would come and God would set up and establish his kingdom. In other words, the whole narrative of the Old Testament is this unfolding drama where Israel is being drawn to her king And that a kingdom would be established through all of the bumps and detours along the way. The kingdom of God was the great hope of Israel. And so the jaw-dropping announcement of Jesus is that the kingdom is at hand. Thousands of years of hoping, longing, waiting, looking for. Seasons where you think maybe by your disobedience you've put the whole thing in jeopardy. And now Jesus arrives on the scene to announce that the kingdom of God is at hand. That's a big word. And so you can imagine for Israel, with this pretty big claim, you can imagine the skeptics and the contrarians kind of looking at Jesus with a wry smile saying, prove it. Prove it. And so his message is accompanied with signs and with healing and with helping those who had disease And these signs accompany him, especially as he goes to the Jewish community because they're looking for Messiah, but Messiah needs to be confirmed to them in some way. In other words, as Jesus shows up and travels through the countryside and he heals and he delivers and he casts out demons, he verifies his authenticity to be the Messiah. In other words, he's not just any messianic candidate. Others had come before, I'm the Messiah. But Jesus, his credibility because of what he performs. And so a part of this healing that we see here, it's for two reasons. One, to authenticate his message. But secondly, his healing also shows us the heart of God. That God's heart is really restorative. That he really wants us to be made whole. That our brokenness in any way 
physical, disease, emotional, spiritual, any kind of brokenness grieves the heart of God. And he desires to restore that which is broken and to make all things as they should be. And so one of the real beautiful things that we see in Jesus and his ministry traveling throughout the countryside, healing and casting out demons, is that we see that the heart of God really is for human flourishing. He really wants what is good for us. And so the good news of the kingdom of God, it's not just, it's not just theological, but it's deeply personal. It's that God really, truly loves us, loves you, insert name here. He really knows you and really loves you and he really wants to see human flourishing and wholeness and goodness. And this reality really comes through in the next verse, in verse 36 here, where it says that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. If you're the kind that underlines in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline that word so that you might think deeply about it and even do a little bit of a word study on it here, which I'll equip you for in just a minute. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, not only did they not have a kingdom, not only did they not have their king, but we learned that they didn't even have good under-shepherds. Those that God had entrusted, the religious leaders and the priests and, and whatnot, weren't even taking good care of those that they had been entrusted with. And the absence of godly leadership had left them very vulnerable and had left them in a state where they were routinely being taken advantage of. And seeing this evokes in Jesus compassion. Jesus had compassion on the crowds. The word here, compassion, is one of the great words in the New Testament. In this particular form as it's used, where it says that he had compassion, it's splunk oh, see, it's tough to say here. Splunk nidzimai. I'm still not saying it wrong. Splunk nidzomai. I can't do it. That's how good the word is. But it means to be moved to the bowels, which is a little bit blushing. It means, I think Eugene Peterson has done a good job of rendering it in the, uh, in the uh, message. And he says, it broke his heart. It's a gut reaction. It's when you see something that bothers you to the extent, the extent that you almost feel a physical pain in the center of your person. And that's the word here. Jesus had compassion on the crowds. It's not like, oh, he was kind of irritated or he had hoped for a little bit more or he was slightly disappointed in the religious leaders. He had compassion on them. His heart broke. He was moved to his core. And again, what caused this reaction particularly was the shortcoming of Israel's leaders. And I would tell you, if you ever want to see how want to see God's expectation for his leaders, for the shepherds of Israel, for the shepherds of the church. If you ever want to see that heart, look at Ezekiel 34 and see not only what he expects of them, but also see his disappointment when they fall short of it. But this, this, or this, this failure, this abandonment of sort of Israel's leaders was actually prophesied. It was predicted. And so we'll, I want to take you to <clears throat> Micah chapter 5 if you want to turn there. If you just go back in your Bible a few pages to the left. <clears throat> Micah 5.2, it says this. Now, we often read this passage during Christmas time, but 
But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the, clan, the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler of Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now we know this. We think, oh yeah, this is where we, we learn where the Messiah will come from. The baby will be born in Bethlehem. Ah, so we see it here. But it continues and it says this, therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And so here is this forward-looking picture for Israel, that a ruler will come, will be born. There will be a time of abandonment, which Jesus is observing. And there will be a Savior who arrives on the scene, who will essentially establish his kingdom. And so Jesus stands now on the scene in Matthew, if you want to turn back to Matthew. And he has this first-hand observance of the abandonment of the people by their leaders. And it breaks his heart. They're harassed and helpless. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody or something that is harassed and helpless before. A couple of years ago, two years ago, Amy or uh, Aiden and I were out. Amy wouldn't go hunting with me. Aiden and I were out hunting. <coughs> and I don't mind telling you exactly where we were. Ready? I'm going to reveal my hunting spot to you. We were in the Alaska range. <laughs> Along with others of you. And we were sitting in our favorite spot on our favorite hill watching this particular valley that we, that we hunt. And we had seen, um, we were in a trophy management area, so the bull, has, bull moose has to be 50 inches or four brow time. And we had a nice little bull in our valley, and he wasn't 50 inches, but we wanted to get a better look at him to see if he had four brow time. So we kind of left after the morning hunt because he bedded down in a place we couldn't see him. We came back around lunchtime, and he wasn't there. So we're kind of looking around. Where did he go? What's the deal? Where is this thing? And then all of a sudden, Aiden shouts out, here he comes, and he came running out of the woods. What makes a bull moose run in the woods? A predator of some kind. And so here is this grizzly bear chasing this mature 40-inch bull through our valley right in front of us. So we're sitting here on on the hillside watching all this, And this bull moose just comes running across with the bear right on its tail. And you can hear it. Like you can hear the bear just with every stride, just grunting after this thing. And this bull moose, I mean, they've got big eyes. And when they're scared, you can see the whites of their eyes. So this thing is cruising along and then it turns and it starts coming right at us. And so I'm sitting here with the rifle, and Aiden's helping me spot things, and he kind of starts scrambling, like, what are we going to do here? And, I, you know, of course, I'm trying to get him to think, along with myself, that we're predators here, too, you know? We're not, we're not future victims. We're dangerous men right now, Aiden. <laughs> so they come and turn right in front of us, and this bull moose just turns, I mean, like, between me and the wall here, it's just running right in front of us, and its, its horns are just slap and brush, and we can watch this bear go, and I'm trying to get my rifle up, and it's like clearing brush, clearing brush, gone, right? About that fast, and they're out of sight and out of mind, and we don't know how it ended. I know you're all sitting there going, what happened? Well, what we know is that we didn't see it end, and we did see a bear in that same valley over the next couple of days, so we suspect that the moose got away. Otherwise, I think the bear would have camped out and gorged. 
This last year, we went to our same valley, and on our way out, we saw a caribou that had been taken down by a wolf. Wolf tracks all around it. And you're thinking, man, we're just here in, in all of this. And if you spend any time out in the wilds of Alaska, you will see the predator-prey dynamic that is going on. It happens all the time. So we may not see bands of sheep walking around town that are harassed and helpless without a shepherd. But we know predator and prey, don't we? And we've probably all got a story that we could share of seeing something harassed, even if we were the ones doing it. Um, and this is, these are the pictures that kind of came to my mind as I was reading this passage of watching this critter being harassed by a bear or, or walking up on this caribou and just seeing this majestic animal with a huge rack just laying there and just a portion gone and wolf tracks all around it. And this is a picture, this is the kind of thing that Jesus saw, but it wasn't the animals in the countryside, it was his dear children, his creation, people whose names he knew. The number of hairs on their head counted. He knew them. And he saw them abandoned, and he saw them harassed, and he saw them like sheep without a shepherd, not being protected, not being led to pasture, not taught about their God, not being led in worship, and seeing it moved him to compassion, to have a broken heart, to be grieved. And what's fascinating also about this word is that we find it's not just a strong emotion, but every time it's used in Matthew, it's followed up by immediate action. In other words, we might say it's emotion that is strong enough to make one act. We find, I've, I've listed the references for you so you could chase this word through Matthew a little bit here. In Matthew 14, 14, it says this, when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. What he saw bothered him to the point that he would do something. And then in Matthew 15, verse 32, if you want to skip ahead to that one, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat and I don't want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. That's a great question. And we have the feeding of the 4,000 here. It was his compassion that moved him to act. In Matthew 18, we find Jesus telling the parable of the unmerciful servant and The word is there as well. It says the servant's master took pity on him. This is the same word, compassion. Canceled the debt and let him go. The compassion moved him to act. It it moved him to do something in, in the parable here. And then one more time in Matthew 20, verse 34, it says Jesus had compassion on them and he touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and followed him. We, we talked about this two weeks ago as we looked at the golden rule, right? Do you remember? And I, if you were paying attention at the time, I had told you about something that I had learned that week, which was about the silver rule. So the golden rule we know, we know do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The silver rule was kind of the teaching of the day that had been circulated by other rabbis and other teachers, and it said, don't do to others 
what you wouldn't have them do to you. It was in the negative. And we, and we kind of talked about how even in the, in the silver rule, you can sort of keep it by just omission, just by doing nothing. It's like, do no harm. I don't have to be engaged with you or really do anything to keep the silver rule. I just have to not hurt you. Whereas Jesus teaches a superior relational ethic, which is, no, you have to go and do to others what you would have them do to you. In other words, he calls us into Christian action, not just inaction, which was sort of the common standard of the day. And so what has been standing out to me in this is that the compassion that Jesus felt was not just an emotion, was not just a sentiment, but it led him to action. It led him to do. And so I want to ask you these following questions. Do we share the heart of Jesus for the lost? When we look around and we see people who don't know the Lord, and don't experience peace with God, don't know the truths of the scriptures, can't sing the songs that we just sang, knowing their implications, have no hope of eternity, are living only for the now, and are bothered by all of the same things that we see. When we see people in this condition, do we share Jesus' heart for them? Are we moved to compassion? Are we grieved at the distortion and the degradation of life that is rampant with sin? Do we grieve for the lack of godly leadership in our world? Does it even get past our skin and get into our hearts and create unrest and emotion and sincere compassion? And does our compassion lead us to Christian action? What follows in this picture here of our Savior's heart then is our Savior's plan. And amazingly, and I don't think I'll ever get over this, and I don't think that I want to, is this, that Jesus, that the triune God who looks at the world and says, this isn't how it should be and we need to set about fixing it. He says, yes, he sends the Son. The Son is sent to be the Savior. But I am shocked that you and I are left to be the ambassadors. The message is left to us to pass along. And so amazingly, in, in the plan of God is that he would dignify and deputize his followers to go out and to share the ministry with the world. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So Jesus, this is our next point here, Jesus commands his disciples to pray for workers. I ran across a great quote this past week while I was studying this passage by Warren Wiersbe. <clears throat> he said this, It is a serious thing to pray for the lost because God will want to use you to answer those prayers. I thought that was excellent. You know, I think C.S. Lewis is well known for his, his quote on prayer, right? That prayer doesn't change God, but it changes us. And, and I'm thinking about sort of the confluence of these two concepts here, these ideas. When we begin to pray to God for the lost, uh, we're not informing him of something that he doesn't know. We're not persuading him of something that he isn't already motivated for. We're simply beginning a conversation with the Lord who is already convinced of their need 
and is already persuaded that they need an ambassador to share with them the gospel. So when we begin this conversation with the Lord, uh, no doubt we're going to find ourselves the one persuaded, (laughs) informed, and called to act. So I would say this, by all means, pray for workers. But don't be surprised when you find out from the Lord that it's you. And so really in this opening section here, what we learn about really is God's heart for the lost. And so I want to just pastorally punch you in the arm for a little bit here, okay? Do you share God's heart for the lost? Does it break your heart? Do we have this gut-level reaction that really longs for their salvation? Does that longing compel us to actually do something, some kind of action, as it did the Father when he sent the Son, and as it did the Son when he went to the lost and needy? And here's maybe, I guess, the punch in the arm that I want to throw out there, and that's this. I find few Christians today whose hearts are moved to compassion more and more what I find are Christians whose hearts are permeated by irritation. Just frustrated with the world as it is. Just disappointed in the decisions that other people make. Maybe just grossed out by their sin. Maybe just angry at their values. Disgusted by their choices. Withdrawn from interaction. Removed from relationship. Or even behaving smugly because we got it and you don't. And this is oftentimes sort of the tenor that I find in Christians today. But our God, who alone is holy, had compassion for the lost. And it moved him to act in sending the Son. And it moved him to act in going to serve those who were sick and needy. And it moved him to authorize ambassadors who would then go and be his servants. I'm going to stop right here this morning. I had planned to go further, but I don't want to rush it. And so we're going to stop here, and next week we're going to come back and we're going to look at Jesus initially sending out the apostles. And then his commission that begins to move on to sending us out to the larger Gentile population. My heart, my question for you this morning would simply be this, that you would stop and you would begin to ask this, do I share the heart of my Savior for the lost? Do I? Let's pray. Father, I think it's easy for us at times, if I'm honest, that we, the church, would maintain some sort of us-them perspective of the world, that we're in the kingdom and others are not. I pray, Lord, that we would be moved to compassion as you were when you sent your son, that you would give in such costly fashion your beloved son you would send away from the beautiful communion of the triune Godhead and the comforts of heaven that you would send him to this world, that you would allow him to take on human flesh, that you would allow him to be treated as he would was, that you would allow him to then die 
for rebels. So we see our, your compassion, Father. And we see the compassion in the Son that he would submit to you, that he would obey, and that he would set about those things. We're amazed, Lord, that you would dignify and deputize us and call us to be your ambassadors and call us into this mission field. So I ask, Lord, that you would, right now, this moment, work on our hearts. That we would share your compassion. That we would feel it in our guts. That our hearts would break. That we would long for the flourishing of our fellow man. So move in us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.